Live from the Padawanami Studios in Idaho Falls, Idaho. I'm your host, Jared Andrus, and welcome to History on the Dark Side. We're going to join one of, another one of our New York affiliates, WABC, for their live coverage. Overhead, and then all of a sudden, I, I thought it sounded kind of loud, um, louder than I looked up, and all of a sudden, it smashed right dead into the center of the World Trade Center. Um, big, uh, big flash of flame, uh, fire coming out from all over. Then the, all the um, the bricks is a huge hole right now. Um, this is a special episode about one of the darkest days in American history, September 11th. 2001. I want to take a minute and just share a little bit about what that day was like for me and what that day continues to be like with me as I come to terms with it over time. I think it's something that all of us who were there have to deal with. On September 11th, I was still working at UPS and I worked nights, so I was asleep in the morning when it happened. I remember that my wife came in to wake me up, and she was trying to hand me the phone. She's like, Jared, Rick's on the phone. And I'm just trying to wake up after a long night at work in UPS. And Rick was someone from church, a friend of mine, someone who's always kind of stern but funny, and very kind of loud, no matter how you sliced him. He was loud. But he's pretty quiet this morning. He sounded different. He sounded like he was worried or in pain. And he said, Jared, I need you to go look at the TV right now. I'm like, what are you talking about? What channel? He says, just go look at the TV right now. I can't believe it. And so I staggered out into the living room and I turned on the TV, not really knowing what channel to switch to. And as it turns out, it really wouldn't have mattered. And there was the, you know, one of the Twin Towers sitting there on fire and with the smoke coming out of it. And and I was in, you know, I'm a big news person and I've always liked history. And I was, wow, what is going on here? I think most of us in the world had that very thought, hey, this is not something you see every day. And I was like most people that, you know, we heard the early stories and they talked about it was a small plane that had crashed in the World Trade Center. And, you know, from various angles, you couldn't really tell how big this hole was, though that would change shortly thereafter. So initially, I'm just very curious, and I think most people are. It's on basically every channel already. And I didn't have any thoughts at all that this was an act of terror or anything else. It seemed odd that someone would fly into the building. It's been there a bunch of years. It doesn't seem like they would put the Twin Towers in the uh, flight path of anything. But hey, stranger things had happened. And I was watching when the second plane hit. And I don't remember if the channel I was watching just had both towers up, so I saw it hit. I know a lot of the footage was of that first tower burning. And then they'd switch over and show the footage from a different angle. But the second that second plane hit, I knew what I was looking at. In high school, I'd given several speeches and done a lot of debate about terrorism. And we usually focused on terrorism as it applied to Israel, 
because they seemed to be catching the brunt of it at the time. But, you know, we had the Pan Am flight over Lockerbie. There were various other things that raised the awareness, at least to me, of terrorism in the world. And in that time, there had been many terrorist attacks. We've got the USS Cole, the first attack on the World Trade Center. You've got the embassies in Africa. What looked like, in my mind, over those years, as an escalating number of terrorist activities that were being more and more directed at Americans, albeit in other countries to that point. But when that second plane hit, I immediately thought, we're at war, and the world just ended. Not the world literally ending, but the world I lived in. You know, for my folks and their generation, the big question is, where were you when Kennedy got shot? And for their folks, maybe it was, where were you when you heard the radio broadcast that the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor? 9-11 is what that is for my generation. And wherever you were, you were watching TV because that's the technology we had. I can't even imagine how many TVs were on. Throughout the rest of that day, I, like most everybody else in America, was absolutely glued to the TV. Sometimes I would switch channels or networks. I had cable at the time, so I'm sure I watched Fox and CNN and lots of local affiliates. Those were kind of the big players, ABC, NBC, whoever would put it on. And we'd just go from one channel to the next to see if anybody knew anything new or different. And as there continued to be more attacks, when the plane hit the Pentagon, and once it was clear that that was yet another plane, and finally when United 93 crashed in Pennsylvania, I was getting more and more angry all the time, like everybody else. I didn't know when this was going to end. I didn't know how long this was going to last. And my initial reaction was one of anger. But that morning, before all of that, but right after that second plane hit, and I am absolutely frozen in time, it was hard for me to breathe. I don't know a soul who lived in New York at that time. I don't have any people that were firemen or police officers, or who worked in the World Trade Center. I had no personal connection to this, but I was absolutely stopped in my tracks. It was hard to breathe, and it was easy to cry when I saw what was going on. To my nation, to my country, to my way of life. And I asked my wife to go get the kids. They were asleep or eating breakfast. I don't know. They weren't in the room we were in. It would not be uncommon to see daddy watching TV and something like a documentary or the news because I'm a nerd and I do that kind of thing. And the children were not that interested, you know. They were pretty young at the time. They probably wanted to watch uh, Pokemon or Barney or whatever was on back in their day. But I had my wife go and get the kids and I set them down in front of the TV screens and I made them watch and I'm sure they didn't understand. And I tried to tell them, the world just changed and your world will never be the same as mine because of this. You need to see this because this is your future now. I didn't even know exactly what that meant. And I'm sure they had a hard time understanding. And maybe it's just because I'm a nerd and news 
you know, a history nerd and a news nerd, but I believed with all my heart that that was an altering moment. Now, when I went to work that night at UPS, there was a lot of things going on there. Number one, every single office had a television screen, had a phone screen, had a radio channel on. There was some form of news coming into every room in that building. Another important thing is that working for UPS, you probably don't know this, but at the time, I believe that UPS was the seventh largest airline in America. Nobody thinks about that because, you know, they think of airlines as moving people and UPS just moves cargo. But we had a ton of planes. That was a big chunk of our business. And that part of our business was grounded, just like all the passenger flights. And we had no idea what the long-term prospect would be for that. So we cared about it from a business standpoint. And then it was very interesting to me to see the people. Most of the people I worked with at UPS were profoundly angry. Everyone was mad that night. Everyone was mad at this unseen, unknown terrorist group. Nobody really knew who Osama bin Laden was yet. Nobody really had a grasp of what the heck was Al-Qaeda. We would soon enough, but we were angry. We knew someone did this to us. And there's comfort in that. There's comfort when you're so emotionally charged with something, whether it's good or bad, and you find groups of people that are in that same boat as you. You feel like you must be right because if you're feeling this hurt and angry and others around you are feeling this hurt and angry, then you must be okay. It must be acceptable to feel this kind of hurt and anguish and anger. So that was interesting in retrospect, as was what did people do after that? I went out and I bought, I hadn't worn jewelry my whole life. But I went out very shortly after 9-11 and bought a Star of David necklace that I wore for several years. And people would ask, you know, hey, what's up with that? And I would say, I want everybody to know which side I'm on. Because I believed very seriously that the world is good and evil. And that this act of terrorism was not just an isolated act by a particular group against a particular region in America. I believe this was symbolic of this battle of good and evil, and I wanted everyone to know which side of that battle I was on. And since the side with the terrorists all seem to be Muslim extremists, you know, what's the one thing they hate more than America? Israel. And so I wanted to identify with them. And the other reason I did that which has meant more to me over the years, I think, is because, you know, Israel as a country and the Jewish people have this mantra of never forget regarding the Holocaust. You know, they had been through the worst thing any of us can ever imagine and then some. And their dedication to remembering that is part of their national and religious identity. Remembrance is a very Jewish proposition anyway. 
Judaism is based on remembrance of God. And I wanted to remember this day. Now, back then, I chose to remember it primarily through anger. I mean, not only was I angry about what I saw happening in America, but some of the news shows would show the streets in Palestine or in other places in the Middle East, and some of those people were happy, they were cheering that this misfortune had been befallen America. Now, I knew that those particular people were not the terrorists who did these attacks. But my personal anger and vengeance about them daring to celebrate such a horrific thing was unrestrained. I was exceedingly angry against all things Islamic or Muslim. And I know in my heart that that wasn't right. You know, I knew even then that the vast majority of the billion people who practice Islam are peace-loving people. And it's this very, very tiny minority who are acting out in this kind of a way. But it was easier for me to just hate everybody than to try and categorize and decide who to hate how much. It's not something I'm proud of. But I think on some level, a lot of people in America felt that way. Now, as I've gotten older, and in the years following 9-11, I think about some of the lessons I've learned, and I think about some of the changes I've seen in others as a result of this day. You know, one of my supervisors, the one I like the most at UPS, his name is Matt, immediately after 9-11, he began looking into becoming a sky marshal and actually applied, and that didn't happen for him in any kind of a timely fashion, but he felt compelled to go do something. So he quit what I know is a lucrative job at UPS because I later, later held that same position. I know he gave up money and he chose to join the California Highway Patrol. He became a cop because he felt this compulsion to serve after 9-11. And he'd always served, but there was this big push for him to do something for his community. I admired him for that. I know what he gave up. And I know when you're a police officer in any way, the risks that are involved in that, that can't be an easy choice to make when you have a wife and small children as he did at that time. So good job, Matt. Some of the other things I've thought about over the years is, you know, at UPS, we had a lot of drivers, a lot of them kind of, you know, might be considered old redneck guys that are not the most tolerant group. They certainly all swear like drunken sailors. And we had one driver in particular. His name was Amin. Okay, I never knew him before he drove the semi-trucks because that's what I did. He was there when I got there. But I'm told that before he started doing that, when he was just driving the regular trucks around town, when he was just working in the warehouse, he was just mean. He was a very angry person who would not even talk to management, had a giant chip on his shoulder, um, felt like he'd been wronged, and held a lot of grudges against a lot of people. 
Now, I'd never seen this. Every time I hear these stories, I'm like, um, are we talking about the same guy? And the one thing people told me is, well, he had converted to Islam. So at some point in his adult life, he switched from whatever religion or lack of religion he was and began practicing Islam. And here before me that I saw every day in a post 9-11 world was a peaceful man who was very well-mannered, soft-spoken. I always thought he was kind and gentle and exceedingly patient. Nothing at all like the stories I had heard about from when he was younger. And I go out on rides with him as a trainer. You know, we would train brand new drivers, but we'd also go out once a year at least and work with people, make sure they're following the rules and procedures to keep them safe, both driving and just working. And so when I'd go out on these safety rides with Amin, I would ask him questions and I would talk about his religion, mostly about himself and how it affected him. You know, I admired that there was this giant change from what everybody said he was before. I admired that he planned his breaks and his meal times around the times for prayer. And he had his little prayer mat or rug, and he would set up his day so that he could take his break at the appropriate time to pray. Because Muslims pray five times a day at specified times. And they face Mecca. He would know where that was so that he could um, participate appropriately in that action. I admired that. And on some of these rides, I would sit and watch as he, as he did this. You know, he would kneel on the ground out in the middle of nowhere or on a asphalt parking lot to pray to Allah. I thought that was cool that here's someone who's really dedicated. And over the years, this was, I think, key for me to soften some of this anger I'd been holding on to since 9-11. It helped to humanize what we're dealing with here. It helped me to separate a man and a religion from a small group of people that do really terrible things in the name of religion. I think another thing that really helped me out a lot was um, the movie United 93. You know, I that was on the five-year anniversary, and I was still pretty bitter when that movie came out. And I had read about it, and I had heard really good things. I'd heard it was tough to watch, but it was just so real. That was kind of what all of the pre-release people and the movie critics had said, is it was, it was hard to watch because it was so real, but it was good to watch because it, it was so real. And it wasn't like a Hollywood job where they glamorized much of anything. So I went with my wife to watch this movie, and I, it was so hard. At the point in that movie, when the second plane hits the tower, I felt my heart just jump. I knew it was coming. I knew what was going to happen. I knew this story. I had watched it before live. And I think that only made it worse. Oh, the impact that had and how I cried. And that theater was so quiet, except for the weeping. And as people left that theater, it was, you know, after a movie, there's people that talk and some people clap and there's some hurrahs. Maybe you're at a Marvel movie. It was so 
deathly quiet after United 93. And what a testament that that is. So there's your movie recommendation, United 93 by uh, Paul Greengrass. And as I read later on, a lot of the people in that movie weren't actors. They were the actual air traffic controllers that were involved on 9-11. It just made it even more powerful for me. So that's something I've watched many times over the years since then. And one other thing that really touched me about that movie. Okay, there's a scene towards the end. It starts in prayer that you have various people going to get on that plane that are saying their morning prayers. And you have the terrorists and they're having their morning prayers. They're both praying to God in their own ways, for their own reasons, about their own things. One, to be safe in their travels, and the other, to be successful in their attack. This film did much to help humanize the terrorists, which, I don't know, maybe some of you don't think that's a good thing. But ultimately, you got to learn how to deal with people and it was people involved in this, not some crazy monsters, not some robots. They were people that made choices. And understanding why they made those choices, that's important. It's always about the why. A couple other thoughts just on the time, kind of immediately after it happened. I remembered a couple things from books. So if you want your book recommendations, I uh, had read a book, The Rogue Warrior, by Richard Marcinko, who is an early Navy SEAL and helped develop, I think, what became SEAL Team 6. So I remember reading this book. It was published in 1992, so I probably read it shortly thereafter. I know it was not long after high school. And he talked about one of the things he chose to do was he would smuggle a very small pistol in his underwear onto airplanes, commercial aircraft. And he was trying to demonstrate how vulnerable the commercial aircraft industry was. And he got away with this several times. And he had taken that information to whoever to try and say, hey, if I can get a gun on a plane, what's going to happen when a bad person does? Now, obviously, guns weren't used on these planes in 9-11. Box cutters, of all things, a fake bomb. But knowing that somebody recognized this weakness so many years ago and tried to bring it to the attention of the people that mattered, oh, that hurts. That hurts to know that nobody really believed him. Nobody thought it was that likely or important. And for a bunch of years, it wasn't. But look where we ended up. Now, the other literary thing I thought of was a book by Tom Clancy, which was Dead of Honor. So Dead of Honor is like a sequel to The Sum of All Fears. But in, and I thought about this later on 9-11. Later in that day, I'm like, oh my gosh, I read a book, I can't remember who wrote it, where somebody flew a plane into the White House or into Congress or into something. And I thought, oh my gosh, we telegraphed this. If somebody can think about that in fiction, why could nobody think about that and find a way to protect against that in real life? So I like Tom Clancy as an author anyway. I recommend any of his books. But reading through Dead of Honor, especially as you get towards the very end, the last chapter or two, 
is a shockingly different experience in a post 9-11 world. You would think he modeled that chapter on the actual attacks, but that, again, came out years and years before 9-11. And I've had the thought, and I'm sure others have, maybe even Mr. Clancy has, like, oh my gosh, what if the terrorists read this too? What if that was one of the inspirations for this attack? Anyways, that's a rabbit hole I don't want to go down. This is not a conspiracy theory podcast. So some of the other media that is interesting as far as 9-11 goes is, you know, in music, there were, in my mind, twin perfect responses for 9-11. They both came out of the country music tradition. So country music, along with jazz, that's the most American of music. No one else can have country and Western because they don't have a Western tradition. That's a very American thing. This westward expansion, horses and cowboys and doing things alone. So the first one is the song that I think best captured that anger and that need for vengeance. And that's you know, Toby Keith, The Angry American, or Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue. That song, which he initially didn't even record, and he only played for military people, and when he went on a little tour of military bases, I mean, it's not super deep. It's kind of a shallow, I don't know, song as far as how into 9-11 and those kind of things you want to go. But oh, how it captures that anger of, you just did this to us, you son of a biscuit. Man, he captured that good. I listen to that song all the time before I teach a class. It gets me pumped up and moving. Because ultimately, I think that's the America we often want to be. Oh yeah, you know, we walk tall, we walk softly and carry a big stick. And man, if you mess with us, you've brought a knife to a gunfight. And you better watch yourself, because if... We take a hit, you're going to take two. That's, I think that's America we want to be. And that's a very visceral, very immediate kind of response. And that's how I felt for a lot of years. Now, the other song, again, out of the country music tradition that I thought just crushed it. And that's Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning. Man, that song, which I don't know that anybody knew was coming. You know, that got played for the first time at a, I think it was at a benefit concert for 9-11. So it got put together reasonably quickly. And that's Alan Jackson, right? So the first time I heard that song, I literally stopped. He captured everything so perfect. This idea of loss and worry and the world stopping he crushed it. And then he did the one thing that I needed, that maybe America needed, maybe the world needed. He gave us a place and a way to heal. He didn't just leave us mad, but he got us turned back towards each other, back towards love and family and God. And, you know, I think Toby Keith got us moving again, because at first we're just stuck and we're just in shock. And that song, hey, that broke us out of our... uh state of confusion and got things moving. And then I think when where were you when the world stopped turning, at least for me, really gave me a place to go with that emotion, with that anger, to give it up. 
to move on in a way that's effective. So the last little part I think about in the years, you know, since then, and that would be, I'm a teacher now. And every year, very early in the year, as a U.S. history teacher, 9-11 comes up. And my first year teaching, I asked one of our teachers, Jeff, I'm like, do we do something for 9-11? Is there a school thing? What happens here? Because I feel like we should do something, but I'm new, so I don't know what happens. And he said, well, they usually do a minute of silence, and you can do a lesson if you want. You can do whatever you want with it. If you want to do a little mini lesson, you want to talk about that at the start of the class, you want to do the whole lesson all day on that, you can do what you want. Well, as you might guess, I choose to do an all-day lesson with that. You know, I and it's hard because I usually have to give this same lesson five or six times, and it is so emotionally draining. And I talk about, you know, I started in the 50s and 60s with some of these early terrors. I started with Munich and the attack on the Olympics. And I go through some of these various attacks over the years around the world, and then I start honing in on the ones against America, whether that's the embassies or the World Trade Center first time, the USS Cole. And I show this pattern and this expansion of attacks against America and kind of set that as a backdrop. When I talk about 9-11, I usually have some of the news footage from that day playing on my video screen. So they walk in to the news and it kind of simulates what it was like for me to wake up and walk out into the living room and here's this news on. And so I have it set up to be you know, five minutes before the second plane hit, something like that. And I just let it run. I just let it play. And they can usually tell it's not live because the video quality is not great, but I just let it play. And then I stop and I start talking about all these things and I start showing them. And I do talk about those, you know, the music a little bit. We talk about the falling man. I don't know if you remember the falling man. It's this picture of one of the people who jumped from the World Trade Center. And there's a point where this photographer, his last name's Drew, I forget his first name, but he got this picture. Who knows how big his telephoto lens is, but the man looks like he's sitting, almost like he's maybe sitting in prayer or something, but he's completely upside down and he's just falling. And we talk about that. And why would a person ever choose to do that? And we talk about this feeling of hopelessness, this utter lack of control if you're up in that building, and how this single act is one way that some people chose to take that control back. And, you know, I'm teaching eighth graders. And frankly, and this is sad, a lot of them have suicidal thoughts. And every couple years, Somebody who is at school where I teach ends up attempting or committing suicide up at the high school. We talk about how that sometimes is an act of trying to regain control in a world that they think is out of control. And it opens up some tough discussions. I've got this little video I show. And again, I'm sorry for not looking up the names here, but the first fireman who was killed on 9-11 wasn't killed from fire, from smoke inhalation. He died when someone who jumped out of 
the first tower landed on him. And that impact killed him. And I have another very short video that shows part of the bottom of the building and a body just streaking by. And then it's lost behind some trees. You don't actually, I'm not trying to show eighth graders some big splatter movie. I don't think it would be as effective anyway. I think knowing what happened, but not seeing it probably forces them to try and imagine things. It probably makes it worse for them. And we talk. And one thing I really like to do, and this is, if you've seen United 93, it plays in with that so well. Some of the people on that plane, when they knew it was being hijacked, and they knew they were going to crash, they started calling home. You know, the plane got low enough they could do that, and they had either their cell phones or the little air phones in the planes. They were calling home. And we... We don't know what those conversations were for most of them, because if you picked up the phone, you had your conversation. We don't have any record of that. We don't know what that is. You know, some of the surviving people that they called, they could recount it, but it's from the best of their recollection. But there are at least three, and I don't know if there's more, but I know there's at least three, because the 9-11 Museum there in Shanksville has these, Phone calls where they someone on the plane called their mom, their sister, their brother, their father, somebody, and they weren't home. And they were able to leave a message on their answering machine. And we have those messages. You can look them up on YouTube. They play a few of them at the museum, and somebody was kind enough to upload those to YouTube. So I play those for my class. And every year, I have these young 8th graders. They weren't born yet. They were not here for 9-11. And it's ups and downs as we talk about these things. We watch these videos. We look at these pictures. We listen to these songs. But when I get to those phone calls, they're just so human. And I've got, you know, young girls and young men. And they're just crying and weeping. And it makes it so personal for them. Those records make a connection that those kids couldn't have any other way. A lot of times for the rest of the year, that's the event that really cements the trust between the kids and me as a teacher, that we've been through that together, that 9-11 lesson. And having been through that really hard emotional thing together, I think it makes us closer. And of 9-11 lessons, that's the one that matters. You know, we as Americans went through that. And it brought us closer. I wasn't, you know, I thought George W. Bush was kind of a goober. I voted for him, but, you know, he was kind of goofy. I didn't know if he was the right guy for the job. He seemed kind of simple. When those early reports come out that he's reading to the kids when the stuff starts, it doesn't look good. But when I hear him giving that speech from the rubble, when he walks down to the site and he climbs up on that you know mound of debris and he gives that speech with the megaphone, man, he was the right guy for the job. He nailed that. When I think about 
how Congress, can you imagine this? Congress, however divided they were back then, they all met together on the steps and they sang, what was it, God bless America? Are you kidding me? Can you imagine them trying to get together now? There's so much animosity. I don't even know if it would work today. But in that moment of absolute shared despair and horror, we came together more as a people. The world got smaller. And as much as it got harder, because you can't walk your friend onto an airplane anymore, you can't say goodbye from the gate. You've got to go wait outside past security. There's, you know, there was no pat downs. There was no real high-tech x-rays and enhanced body searches. And these things didn't exist. Travel's so very different now. And the world's so very different now. You know, we had the Patriot Act and the technology being able to use to spy on Americans to make sure there wasn't domestic terror threats and the battles that ensued, including, you know, things going to the Supreme Court of whether this is legal or not. So much has changed. It's never going back. And this year, as we live in a pandemic that seems to be number one on everybody's mind, number two is probably the election. This is as divisive an election as I've ever lived through. I wonder, as 9-11 comes in a few days, who's going to remember? And what will they remember? We're in a world that's pretty tore up and pretty full of hate right now. It's very divided. And maybe that'll play into that. Maybe that we'll remember those division and that anger. Or maybe we'll remember those times we came together at 9-11. We'll remember that shared circumstance. And maybe we'll take a day off from all that divisiveness. Maybe we can just be Americans again for one day. Maybe we can have a little less Toby Keith and a little more Alan Jackson for just that one day. I don't know. Where were you when the world stopped turning on that September day? You in the yard with your wife and children working on some stage Did you stand there in shock at the sight of that black smoke rising against that blue sky? Did you shout out in anger 